0: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Welcome to the greatest of all time speeches and journals podcast. hello and welcome back. I am really excited to have the opportunity to go over the speech today. There are just so many layers to what we're about to go into um, a fascinating fascinating speech and circumstances. Um, I this is Clarence Darrow and and his story as well as the the case um, so I, I, it's hard for me to, to lay it out. Uh, without starting, I suppose, at the beginning of the story. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the Scales of Justice. You know, there's the blind lady and she holds the two scales. And my understanding is, is that the, the scales represent two things, um, the the balance of the individual versus the needs of, of society, or in some ways, um, you know, it, it's, it's justice and mercy it can be looked at that way as well. Um, and so... This speech is an interesting one of trying to get the balance right of justice for society versus uh, a form of mercies for the individuals. Um, And it's a very delicate balance, which is why the scale, so to speak. Um, This speech is known as uh, the mercy speech. Um, Even though he says many times throughout the speech that he's not seeking for mercy, you can't help but see the you know, there are times where he seeks for it as well. So um, the thing about mercy is is that everybody loves mercy when you're the one receiving it. <laughs> you know, when you're the one getting mercy, it's great. Um, it, it can often be a difficult thing when somebody, you know, the, the challenge is when somebody else wants mercy and they've done something wrong. And that's really the conundrum with it. Um, it's a really amazing principle, mercy, but it's not necessarily an easy one. It's not really as simple as it sounds. Um, The question becomes uh, rather than, you know, the question can become who receives mercy or when should I give mercy or what does mercy even look like? And we're going to get into what that actually means. A bit of a background on Clarence Darrow. Clarence um, was born in a small town, uh, Farndale, Ohio, in in 1857. And this is a significant because the Civil War in America uh, was from 1861 to 1865, I believe. So he starts his journey in <laughs> in his life around this time. He grows up draw- during that Civil War. So it makes you wonder what stories he grew up on and who influenced him from this era. A lot of people died in that war. We're talking you know, over 600,000-odd. I think my understanding is there's more Americans died In that war, than they did in both World Wars, Korea and Vietnam combined. I think that might be right. Um, So a significant war, the Civil War, um, and it really wasn't that long ago. So this is kind of where he grows from, and his father, you know, was uh, uh, um, he was completely uh, he he was always involved in um, uh, abolitionists. You know, so he was he was against slavery and things like that. Uh, and a f- religious freethinker, and his mother was also, Emily Darrow, was uh, an early supporter of female suffrage and women's rights. So they were significant. It, it seems like they were progressives in their in their day and age, which is significant. He studied law, did it for many years. He, he went out of civil and into criminal law because there was accusations against him, uh, against Clarence, uh, s- suggesting that he tried to buy out some of the jury members in a particular case, um, nothing was proven, um, but it ended up, it led him towards criminal law. So he has an interesting background. Um, throughout his career, one of the significant areas of uh, Darrow's whole career was opposing the death penalty. He was the guy you called when the chips were down and you were worried about something to that effect. He lessened the blow and became a very powerful defense lawyer. He ended up getting, and he was known for his eloquence. He had an intellect that, and and a way of words that often drew people to to tears in the crowd. So, um, very, uh, very quick witted and and good with his words. Nineteen twenty four was a very significant moment in his career, and the reason was is he had the trial of the century, essentially. Um, this is five and a half years after the First World War. In the summer of 1924, Clarence Darrow took on the case of Nathan Leopold Jr. and Richard Lowett, the teenage teenage sons of two wealthy Chicago families who were accused of kidnapping and killing Bobby Franks, a 14-year-old boy from their stylish Southside Kenwood neighborhood. So they were wealthy from wealthy families and they took this little boy and they murdered him. Leopold was a law student at the University of Chicago about to transfer to Harvard Law, and Loa was the youngest graduate ever from the University of Michigan. They were 18 and 17 when they were arrested, and when they were asked you know, why they committed this crime, this murder on this poor boy, Leopold told everybody that the thing that prompted Dick to want to do this thing and prompted me to want to do this thing was a sort of pure love of excitement. The imaginary love of thrills, doing something different, the satisfaction and the ego of putting something over. So, the reason why they killed this poor boy was because of excitement, love of excitement and satisfaction, and ego. I mean, it's just horrible stuff. So, these are the people that Clarence Darrow has to defend. Um, the, um, and you know, um, you know, it, it, it starts off with a difficult conundrum right there. So the two young men grew up with you know, in respective families in affluent Kenwood neighbourhood on Chicago's south side. The Loabs owned a summer estate now called Castle Farms in, uh, in Michigan. In addition to their mansion in Kenwood, two blocks from the Leopold home, though Leopold and Loab knew each other, casually while growing up they began to build on their relationship as they got older and one of the key things in their relationship and in their growth was they started to study Nietzsche's uh Nietzsche's con- concept of superman uh leopold in particular and he became fascinated on it and and they it was that superman idea that that they um they spoke about it, essentially saying that uh, when you have got extraordinary and unusual you know when you're excelling in things that you're not beholden to the same rules as everybody else, that they were not bound by any of society's norms, ethics, or rules. So in a letter to Loeb, Leopold wrote, a Superman is on account of s- certain superior qualities inherent in him exempted from the ordinary laws which govern men. He is not liable for anything he may do. So Nietzsche's, I mean, that, that's a dangerous doctrine to take very literally, and they acted it out in full effect with their murder on that poor boy. Um, it gets a little dark here because I need you to understand the background of the story and why it's so significant. Uh, the, the pair basically, um, they started doing petty theft and vandalism based on that doctrine, breaking you know into houses, universities, you know, they stole stuff. Um, And then they started doing more serious crimes, including arson, but no one was really taking any notice of their crimes. And so disappointed with that that, and getting no coverage or attention for it, they decided to plan out um, the perfect crime, so to speak, which would get everybody talking. Um, And essentially what that was was murder. And that led to the murder of... Um, Robert Bobby Franks. So what they ended up doing was after a, a long period of time looking for a, a suitable victim, um, they, um, they ended up going into a playground and they kind of got freaked out when they started hanging around some of these young boys in the playground. It, it didn't suit them. And as they came out, they saw Bobby Franks, and he was a 14-year-old son of a watch manufacturer. Um, named Jacob Franks, and they were actually related um, to Loeb, so they were second cousins, and they lived across the street from each other. So they saw him, and it was more um, opportunistic. The pair basically, um, you know, pulled up next to him in a uh, in a car which they'd rented, and they offered Bobby Franks uh, a ride as he walked home from school. So the boy initially refused. Uh, because he was just up the road from his own house um but they were able to persuade him into the car to discuss a tennis racket that he'd been using um and they lulled him in um and this is the um essentially got him into the back into the front of the car um and um from there uh, Leopold was behind the wheel of the car while Loeb sat at the back seat with a chisel and Loeb struck Bobby Franks. Um, in the head with that chisel um, several times and then dragged him into the back of the seat where he was gagged and he was soon died. Very, very sad. Uh, completely sick and sadistic in every way you can think of it. Just cold-blooded murder, premeditated on this poor boy. Um, then they went ended up dumping the body and they poured acid on the body to hide his identity um, and... This became um, this became massive news all around the world because how sadistic it was, and we're talking about a time. This is pre Google, pre Facebook, social media, internet, um, and despite that, it was in every home, every newspaper around the country, even the world. This was being talked about. Massive news, <clears throat> and um, I don't know if you've ever watched the movie where, you know, you you turn to the person with you watching it and you you see some horrible criminal have a defense lawyer and you kind of think, how on earth can this person defend this monster? How is that even possible? And that's essentially what we've got here. You've got these two murderers who have admitted to the crime, uh, killed a poor innocent lad in horrible circumstances, bragged about it, said it was for the thrill and for ego, And now they have to have someone defend them. And that's where we meet Clarence Darrow and we get his perspective on it. So um, I'll just get into the speech of Clarence Darrow. This speech went over, I think, three days where he spoke um, here. And his main goal was not to prove their innocence. His main goal was that we as a society shouldn't even though it was horrific, that we shouldn't um, engage in a death penalty. So I'll leave it up to you whether you think he's right or wrong, but it certainly is a a historic speech. So I've tried to trim the speech down so that it'll fit. Um, Obviously, I'm not going to read three days' worth of speech to you, but I've picked out the parts I thought might be relevant. Um, And so I'll just get into it. Our Honour. It has been almost three months since the great responsibility of this case was assumed by my associates and myself. I am willing to confess that it has been three months of great anxiety, a burden which I gladly would have been spared excepting for my feelings of affection towards some of the members of one of these unfortunate families. This responsibility is almost too great for anyone to assume but we lawyers can no more choose than the court can choose. Our anxiety over this case has not been due to the facts that are connected with the most unfortunate affair, but to the almost unheard of publicity it has received, to the fact that the newspapers all over this country have been giving it space such as they have almost never before given to any case. The fact that day after day the people of Chicago have been regaled with stories of all sorts about it until almost every person has formed an opinion. And when the public is interested and demands a punishment, no matter what the offence, great or small, it thinks of only one punishment, and that is death. It may not be a question that involves the taking of human life. It may be a question of pure prejudice alone. But when the public speaks as one man, it thinks only of killing. We have been in this stress strain for three months. We did what we could and all we could to gain the confidence of the public, who in the end really control whether wisely or unwisely. Just pause the speech. I I really find it fascinating um, uh, being the defense for someone you know is guilty. I mean, imagine... Being Clarence Darrow, and and he says, you know, this anxiety and all the rest of it. He knows they're guilty. The most publicized case in the country, uh, and you're supposed to be the defense. And you know, it's it's a significant thing to take on. And I guess when you know that, the question changes, I believe, from who you're defending to what you are defending, or in other words, what principles and beliefs are you defending? Um, and I thought his line. You know, when the public speaks, it only speaks of one thing, and that's punishment, death. Uh, And I thought that was interesting too. You've got to ask, is that true? And why is that true? I mean, in our day, do we see it? You know, when the mob gets together, what do they want? Do we? I mean, maybe we don't see death so much, but do we see cancellations and, um, you know, for personalities, cancel culture, all that kind of thing? Is that kind of a modern-day version of it? I mean, I don't know we'll carry on. But, Your Honour, if these boys hang, you must do it. There can be no division of responsibility here. You can never explain that the rest overpowered you. It must be by your deliberate, cool, premeditated act without a chance to shift responsibility. It was not a kindness to you. We placed this responsibility on your shoulders because we were mindful of the rights of our clients and we were mindful of the unhappy families who have done no wrong. Your Honour will never thank me for unloading this responsibility upon you, but you know that I would have been untrue to my clients if I had not concluded to take this chance before a court instead of submitting it to a poisoned jury in the city of Chicago. I did it knowing that it would be an unheard of thing for any court, no matter who, to sentence these boys to death just pause again, uh, again, it's a powerful moment because he's, it's not a challenge to the judge, to the, you know, he's, he's speaking to him plainly. Um, you know, he's gently placing a heavy load into somebody else's arms. I, I don't know if you've ever moved house and moved, had to move something like a piano or something. And especially when you're trying to go upstairs and there's that moment where you can't go around a wall, but there's a heavy weight and you have to transition the weight from one person to the next just so you can keep it moving um and the heavier the weight, the more delicate the transition. you know, you can't you know, if you're throwing a ball, you can peg, you can throw the ball as hard as you want, but when it comes to heavy items, like certain cabinets or pianos and things like that, the heavier the load, the heavier the the more careful you have to be with the transition. And you have to be very, and here basically he's telling the judge that despite everyone trying to act like the judge, you know, themselves and influence the verdict. He can't actually transition from here anymore. He, he, he's been given this weight and it's now solely with him. It's been carefully given to him. Um, and now um, it has to be carefully received. It almost feels like a personal conversation between the two of them in a crowded court. We will, um, let's carry on reading the speech. Poor little Bobby Frank suffered very little. There is no excuse for his killing. If to hang these two boys would bring him back to life, I would say, let them go. And I believe their parents would say so too. The moving finger writes, and having writ, moves on, nor all your piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line, nor all your tears wash out a word of it. Robert Franks is dead. And we cannot call him back to life. It was all over in 15 minutes after he got into the car and he probably never knew it or thought of it. That does not just justify it. It is the last thing I would do. I am sorry for the poor boy. I am sorry for his parents, but it is done. I have to pause again. Um, this speech is just so deep this situation is so deep it's exceptionally deep, but he's asking the question essentially you know if killing people makes our system better when we realize it doesn't when it doesn't undo anything how does it help? you know if it did something if we could kill hang these boys and bring back Bobby Franks to life then yeah, but it doesn't um you know whenever you do something you, you have to ask that question yeah you know, and whether it's in work or personal life you you ask the question, what's in it for me? And essentially what he's saying is, is by hanging these boys, even though they're guilty and they've done a horrific act, what's in it for us as, as society? How does it benefit us? That's the question he's really asking. I'll continue on. Mr. Savage, with the immaturity of youth and inexperience, says that if we hang them, there will be no more killing. This world has been one long slaughterhouse from the beginning until today, and killing goes on and on and on and will forever. Why not read something? Why not study something? Why not think instead of blindly shouting for death? Kill them. Will that prevent other senseless boys or, vi- or other vicious men or vicious women from killing? No. No. It will simply call upon every weak-minded person to do as they have done. I know how easy it is to talk about mothers when you want to do something cruel, but I'm thinking of the mothers too. I know that any mother might be the mother of a little Bobby Franks who left his home and went to his school and who never came back. I know that any mother might be the mother of Richard Loeb and Nathan Leopold, just the same. The trouble is this that if she is the mother of a Nathan Leopold or of a Richard Loeb, she is to ask herself the question, How came my children to be what they are? From what ancestry did they get this strain? How far removed was the poison that destroyed their lives? Was I the bearer of the seed that brings them to death? Pause speech. This is a, um, it's a painful discussion here. Essentially, I mean, they've used the, the, think of the mother's line, I guess, in the prosecution for death, um, thinking of Bobby Franks. And, and he's saying, well, what about the other mothers? If we're going to talk about mothers, um, where, is her tender, where are their tender mercies as mothers? Where are the cries for her? I mean, there's none. And, and what is worse, to be the mother of an innocent murdered child or the mother of a person who has murdered someone else? To see someone you raise kill an innocent. Imagine being that parent. What questions do you ask yourself? Is it my fault? Did I discipline them enough? Did I love them enough? Did I spend enough time? Could I have prevented this? Horrible questions for any parent to have to ask themselves. We'll carry on the speech. Any mother might be the mother of any of them. But these two are the victims. I remember a little poem that gives... Uh, that talks of a boy about to be hanged, such as these boys might make. The night my father got me, his mind was not on me. He did not plague his fancy to muse if I should be the son you you see. The day my mother bore me, she was a fool and glad for all the pain I cost her that she had borne the lad, that born she had, my father and my mother, Out of the light they lie, the warrant would not find them, and here tis only I, shall hang so high. Oh, let not man remember the soul that God forgot, but fetch the county sheriff and noose me in a knot, and I will rot, and so the game is ended that should not have begun. My father and my mother, they had a likely son, and I have none." No one knows what will be the fate of the child he gets or the child she bears. The fate of the child is the last thing they consider. This weary world goes on, begetting with birth and with living and with death. I am sorry for the fathers as well as the mothers, for the fathers who give their strength and their lives for educating and protecting and creating a fortune for the boys that they love, for the mothers who go down into the shadow of death for their children, who nourish them and care for them and risk their lives that they may live, who watch them with tenderness and fondness and longing, and who go down into dishonor and, and disgrace for the children they love. Pause speech for a little bit. Um, a lot to unpack again. The line he uses is, the weary world goes on, and isn't that true? You know, we we tend to think the world revolves around us and our own actions, and and it's almost cruel that despite someone dying or getting sick you know someone no longer being here the world just does not stop it cruelly just keeps going not only does it just not stop but it carries on and excels as if you never were in it and what of the parents who are left in that world how much should we consider them i have a little girl she's 5 <clears throat> I put her to bed the other night and I couldn't I couldn't but help think of these parents because I had it in my mind. Um, you know, the absolute horrors and pains of all the parents if you're in any of their situations. There, there's nothing compared to raising a child either. I mean, you know, if you took one of the biggest things you had to work towards, like a house, for example, and you think about the amount of effort you put into building that house. You, know, you might spend your whole life thinking about that house and saving for that house. You work for that house every day. The sacrifice you put into it, the blood, sweat, and tears just to build it, and then eventually you build it and you've got to maintain it and, and get it to where you want it to be also that you, have, you can fulfill those dreams of having family and friends come and visit and having somewhere for you and your family to live. Um, and then if someone came and burned that house down, It would. What would that do? You know, it would send shockwaves through your whole network. Um, And yeah, it still wouldn't even come close to the loss of a child. You know, you would willing you would willingly burn down that house if you knew it would save your child, because all the houses is really somewhere for your kids to go. And so nothing compares. And these these people are left in the ashes. Um, with nowhere to go. And so should all the parents be considered or only the victim's parents or none at all? We'll continue the speech. Do you think you can cure it by hanging these two? Do you think you can cure the hatreds and the maladjustments of the world by hanging them? You simply show your ignorance and your hate when you say it. You may here and there cure hatred with love and understanding, but you can only add fuel to the flames by cruelty and hate. What is my friend's idea of justice? He says to this court, whom he says he respects, and I believe he does, Your Honour, who sits here patiently, holding the lives of these two boys in your hands, give them the same mercy they gave to Bobby Franks. Is that the law? Is that justice? Is this what a court should do? Is this what a state's attorney should do? If the state in which I live is not kinder, more humane, more considerate, more intelligent than the mad act of these two boys, I am sorry that I have lived so long. I am sorry for all the fathers and all the mothers. The mother who looks into the blue eyes of a little babe cannot help musing over the end of the child, whether it will be crowned with the greatest promises which her mind can imagine, or whether he may meet death upon the scaffold, all she can do is to rear him with love and care, to watch over him tenderly, to meet life with hope and trust and confidence, and to leave the rest with fate. Pause quickly. This is where it comes down to what the real motive is. I mean, are we looking for a cure? Is that what we're doing? We're trying to stop this from happening? Is that really our motive? Or are we looking to, I mean, are we looking to progress society or are we simply angry and wanting to let it out? What's the goal? Are we wanting to be right? Is that the goal? It almost seems absurd that we, you know, if we want to stop murders, reduce murders through more killing, you know, that we would do it that way. Um, Over the history of the world, humanity has seen all sorts of horrors. What would it take to overturn that? Like, really, like, what would it take to reverse that tide? What would it take for us? What characteristics would we need to show to move away from our history of violence? It's an interesting question. That's really what he's posing. We'll carry on. I sometimes wonder if I am dreaming. If in the first quarter of the 20th century there has come back into the hearts of men the hate and feeling and the lust for blood which possesses the primitive savage of barbarous lands. What do they want? Tell me, is a lifetime for the young boy spent behind prison bars? Is that not enough for this mad act? And is there any reason why this great public should be regaled by a hanging? I cannot understand it. Your Honour, it would be past belief, accepting that to the four corners of the earth, the news of this weird act has been carried and men have been stirred and the primitive has come back. And the intellect has been stifled, and men have been controlled by feelings and passions and hatred, which should have died centuries ago. Pause again. Clarence here is asking again, are we looking back? Are we going back or forward? Doesn't killing these boys just... these? These men, these young men, primitive. He keeps saying boys, by the way, because under the age of 21 back then, I don't think you could be drafted into war, not until Vietnam times, I, I believe. So they're boys, as far as the law is concerned. Um, so he's saying, you know, I mean, modern civilization has its flaws, and I think everyone can point to something where we could say, you know, there's some flaws here, but we, a lot of us could say, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, or could also say that society has given us gifts. Modern society, there are certain gifts that we receive from it as well. And because we know that we received certain gifts from society, you could look at it um, as a, a present almost, like someone's given you that gift. You know, I mean, I mean imagine, put yourself in the scenario that you buy a, a gift for somebody else and you drive past their home to see how they're enjoying their gift that you've given to them but you see it in the trash or you see it outside on the lawn and they're not taking care of it or using it and how that would make you feel knowing that you've spent time and energy and effort and maybe money to get them this gift and they are not using the gift in fact they're destroying it and this is the message he's saying he is saying our ancestors our society has given us this gift of progression and we are not taking care of it we're not treating it like it's a valuable gift. Let's, um, let's keep reading on here. <clears throat> we can come down to the last century when nearly 200 crimes were punishable by death, and by death in every form, not only hanging. That was too humane, but burning, boiling, cutting into pieces, torturing in all conceivable forms. You can read the stories of the hangings on the high hill and the populace for miles around coming out to the scene that everybody might be awed into goodness, hanging for picking pockets and more pockets were picked in the crowd that went to the hanging that had been known before, hangings for murder and men were murdered on the way there and on the way home, hangings for poaching, hangings for everything and hangings in public, not shut up cruelly and brutally in a jail out of the light of the day, weakened in the night time and led forth and killed, but taken to the shire town on a high hill in the presence of a multitude so that all might see that the wages of sin were death. What happened? I have read the life of Lord Shaftberry, a great nobleman of England who gave his life and his labours towards modifying the penal code. I have read of the slow, painful efforts through all the ages for more humanity of man to his fellow man. I know what history says. I know what it means. I know what flows from it. So far as we can tell, which is not with certainty. I know that every step in the progress of humanity has been met and opposed to prosecutors and many times by courts. I know that when poaching and petty larceny was punishable by death in England, juries refused to convict. They were too humane to obey the law and judges refused to sentence I know that when delusion of witchcraft was spreading over Europe, claiming its victims by the millions, many a judge so shaped his cases that no crime of witchcraft could be punished in his court. I know that these trials were stopped in America because juries would no longer convict. I know that every step in the progress of the world in reference to crime has come from the human human feelings of man. It has come from that deep well of sympathy that in spite of all of our training, and all our conventions and all our teaching still lives in the human breast. Without it, there could be no human life on this weary old world. Gradually, the laws have been changed and modified, and men look back with horror at the hangings and the killings of the past. What did they find in England? That as they got rid of these barbarous statutes, crimes decreased instead of increased. As the criminal law was modified and humanised, there was less crime instead of more. I will undertake to say, Your Honour, that you can scarcely find a single book written by a student, and I will include all the works on criminology of the past that has not made the statement over and over again that as the penal code was made less terrible, crimes grew less frequent. Poor speech, um... It's interesting uh, when you look about our ancestry, and it, he he uses that quite powerfully there that that in times past, um, in you know in England and in other Western civilizations, particularly that torturing and all sorts of capital punishment from boilings and cutting to pieces and just horrid stuff was used, and and um, that it wasn't really used to the benefit of society in the sense that crime didn't go down. If anything, it went up. Um, and that's a quite a powerful point to make. And I think w- when we talk about our ancestors, I, I tend to find that we talk about them almost like they were primitive. I mean, the, the the circumstances were more primitive, and their way of life was more primitive because we're you know we've become more modern as time and technology. Everything's gotten better, um, but as a people, they weren't primitive. They were still from a human level. I mean, they they were the, they were uh, equals as far as I understand it. They were just people like you and me trying to do what they they could. And you just have to wonder what they were getting from that. Why would they suffer that for so long? Not just recently, but over all of history. It's almost like an abusive relationship, you know, that that you're in an abusive relationship and you're not getting out of it. There's something you're getting. I'm not saying it's good, but they were getting something from it. And I can't help but feel some kind of empathy to them, um, you know, considering their circumstances and what they had to endure. We'll carry on. If these two boys die on the scaffold, which I can never bring myself to imagine, if they do die on the scaffold, the details of this will be spread over the world. Every newspaper in the United States will carry a full account. Every newspaper of Chicago will be filled with the gruesome details. It will enter every home and every family. Will it make men better or make men worse? I would like to put that to the intelligence of man at least such intelligence as they have, I would like to appeal to the feelings of human beings so far as they have feelings. Would it make the human heart softer or would it make hearts harder? How many men would be colder and cruder for it? How many men would enjoy the details? And you cannot enjoy human suffering without being affected for better or for worse. Those who enjoyed it, it would be affected for the worse. What influence would it have upon the millions of men who will read it? What influence would it have upon the millions of women who will read it? More sensitive, more impressionable, more imaginative than men. Would it help them if your honour should do what the state begs you to do? What influence would it have upon the infinite number of children who will devour its details as Dickie Loeb has enjoyed reading detective stories? Would it make them better or would it make them worse? The question needs no answer. You can answer it from the human heart. What influence, let me ask you, will it have for the unborn babies still sleeping in their mother's womb? And what influence will it have on the psychology of the fathers and mothers yet to come? Do I need to argue to your honor that cruelty only breeds cruelty, that hatred only causes hatred, that if there is any way to soften the human heart, which is hard enough at its best, if there is any way to kill evil and hatred and all that goes with it, it is not through evil and hatred and cruelty." It is through charity and love and understanding. I have become obsessed with this deep feeling of hate and anger that has swept across this city and this land. I have been fighting it, battling with it, until it has fairly driven me mad, until I sometimes wonder whether every righteous human emotion has not gone down in the raging storm. I am not pleading so much for these boys as I am for the infinite number of others to follow, those who perhaps cannot be as well defended as these have been, those who may go down in the storm and the tempest without aid. It is of them I am thinking, and for them I am begging of this court not to turn backward towards the barbarous and cruel past, Poor speech. Um, I I read these words and I can't help but get feelings as I read them because they're they're quite deep and he's peeling back so many layers of discussion. Um, he, He mentions something there. He says, the antidote to hate and cruelty, Clarence says this, he says, is charity, love, and understanding. And I suppose we could ask, well, is that right? I mean... You've got to think like how, how much danger and cause and pain and violence and death has been caused by in the name or pursuit of cruelty and anger and hate. You know, if, if you woke up tomorrow and you woke up and on your lap was the cure to cancer, you had it in a vial and you had the potential to, to give it to others, and you just knew, you, you knew without a doubt that it was the cure for cancer. How far would you go to get it out to the world? I mean, was well, it something like 10 million people die a year of cancer? How far would you go to, to release it to the world? You know, how, how far would you travel? How many people would you ignore who told you to stop trying? How much danger would you, would you be willing to put yourself through to try and give that to your fellow man? What efforts, what money, what sacrifices would you make? I suppose that leads to the question of is if charity, love, uh, you know, is the cure for hate and cruelty, I suppose the question is, is what lengths are we willing to go to share that? It's an interesting question. Let's carry on. And I want to say this that the death of poor little Bobby Franks. Should not be in vain, I would it mean anything would it mean anything if, on the account of that death, these two boys were taken out and uh, and roped tied around their necks and they they died felons? Would that show th- that Bobby Franks had a purpose in his life and a purpose in his death? No, your Honor. The unfortunate and tragic death of this weak young lad should mean something. It should mean an appeal to the fathers and the mothers an appeal to the teachers, to the religious guides, to society at large, it should mean an appeal to all of them to appraise children, to understand the emotions that control them, to understand the ideas that possess them, to teach them, to avoid the pitfalls of life. Now, Your Honour, I have spoken about the war. I believed in it. I don't know whether I was crazy or not. Sometimes I think perhaps I was. I approved of it. I joined in the general cry of madness and despair. I urged men to fight. I was safe because I was too old to go. I was like the rest. What did they do? Right or wrong, justifiable or unjustifiable, which I need not to discuss today. It changed the world. For four long years, the civilized world was engaged in killing men, Christian against Christian, barbarians uniting with Christians to kill Christians, anything to kill. It was taught in every school, in the Sunday schools, the little children played at war, the toddling children on the street. Do you suppose this world has ever been the same since then? How long, Your Honor, will it take for the world to get back? The humane emotions that were slowly growing before the war. How long will it take the calloused hearts of men before the scars of hatred and cruelty shall be removed? We read of the killing of 100,000 men in a day. We read about it and we rejoiced in it, if it was the other fellows who were killed. We were fed on flesh and drank blood, even down to the prattling babe. I need not tell your honor this because you know. I need not tell you how many upright, honorable young boys have come into this court charged with murder, some saved. And some sent to their death. boys who fought in this war and learned to place a cheap value on the human life. You know it, and I know it. These boys were brought up in it. The towers of death were in their homes, their playgrounds, their schools. They were in the newspapers that they read. It was a part of the common frenzy. What was a life? It was nothing. It was the least sacred thing in existence, and these boys were trained to this cruelty. It will take 50 years to wipe it out of the human heart, if ever. I know this, that after the Civil War in 1865, crimes of this sort increased marvelously. No one needs to tell me that crime has no cause. It has a definite cause, as any other disease. And I know that out of the hatred and bitterness of the Civil War came increased, as America had never known it before. I know that growing out of the, the, the Napoleonic Wars, there was an era of crime such as Europe had never seen before. I know that Europe is going through the same experience today. I know it has followed every war, and I know it has influenced these boys so that life was not the same to them as it would have been if the world had not been made red with blood. I protest against the crimes and mistakes of society being visited upon them. All of us have our share in it. I have mine. I cannot tell and I shall never know how many words of mine might have given birth to cruelty in place of love and kindness and charity. Your Honour knows that this, in this very court, crimes of violence have increased growing out of war. Not necessarily by those who fought, but by those that learned that blood was cheap and human life was cheap. And if the state could take take it lightly, then why not the boy? There are causes for this terrible crime. There are causes, as I have said, for everything that happens in the world War is a part of it. Education is a part of it. Birth is a part of it. Money is a part of it. All these conspired to compass the destruction of these two boys. Pause speech. Um, It is an interesting notion that he brings up there, and it's quite a powerful moment there. He he talks about the world and and the times they lived in um, and and the war, world wars that they've been through and, and how that impacted everybody. But the reason he brings it up, he talks about value. See, understanding value can be tricky. It's easy to sometimes to understand monetary value because, you know, $5 will get you this or, you know, a Macca's meal costs you this or these clothes or a car costs you that. So it's, it can be quite simple. But some things are very hard to value. I don't know if you've ever seen that show, you know, where you take antiques and they value the antiques. So you might find something in an old house and you take it there. And it's always interesting to see something that they don't realize is worth a lot of money to be told that it's of great value and you see the looks on their face or well, the same thing is if they think it's really valuable and they get there and they find out it's worth nothing. Um, but that's really the question is what is the value of things? And, you know, we have this scenario of the question he asks is what is the value of a human life? Have we cheapened human life's values? And if we kill these boys, do we really value life? What would life be like if we devalued life? As opposed, And then the other side of the question is what would life be like if we treated every life like it was priceless? What would our society look like if we did that? Interesting question. Carry on. I do not know how much salvage there, are, there, are, there is in these two boys. I hate to say it in their presence. But what is there to look forward to? I do not know, but what your honour would be merciful if you tied a rope around their necks and let them die. Merciful to them, but not merciful to civilization, and not merciful to those who would be left behind. To spend the balance of their days in prison is mighty little to look forward to, if anything. Is it anything? They may have the rope that as the years roll around, they might be released. I do not know. I do not know. I will be honest with this court as I've tried to be from the beginning. I know that these boys are not fit to be at large. I believe they will not be until they pass through the next stage of life at 45 or 50. Whether they will be <clears throat> whether they will be then I cannot tell. I am sure of this that I will not be here to help them. So far as I am concerned it is over. I would not tell this court that I do not hope that sometime when life and age have changed their bodies as it does and has changed their emotions as it does, that they may once more return to life. I would be the last person on earth to close the door of hope to any human being that lives, and least of all to my clients. But what are they to look forward to? Nothing. And I think here of a stanza of Hausman, Now hollow fires burn out to black and lights are fluttering low. Square your shoulders, lift your pack, and leave your friends and go. Oh, never fear, lads, naughts to dread. Look not left nor right, and all the endless road you tread, there's nothing but the night. I know your honour stands between the future and the past. I know the future is with me and what I stand for here. Not merely for the lives of these two unfortunate lads, but for all the boys and all the girls, for all the young and as far as possible, for all the old. I am pleading for life, understanding, charity, kindness and the infinite mercy that considers all. I am pleading that we overcome cruelty with kindness and hatred with love. I know the future is on my side. Your Honour stands between the past and the future. You may hang these boys. You may hang them by the neck until they are dead. But in doing it, you will turn your face toward the past. In doing it, you are making it harder for every other boy who in ignorance and darkness must grope his way through the the maze, which only childhood knows. In doing it, you'll make it harder for unborn children. You may save them and make it easier for every child that sometime may stand where these boys stand. You'll make it easier for every human being with an aspiration and a vision and a hope and a fate. I am pleading for the future. I am pleading for a time when hatred and cruelty will not control the hearts of men, when we can learn by reason and judgment and understanding and faith that all life is worth saving and that mercy is the highest attribute of man. If I can succeed, my greatest reward and my greatest hope will be that I have done something for the tens of thousands of other boys, for the countless unfortunates who must tread the same road in blind childhood that these poor boys have trod. But I've done something to help human understanding, to to temper justice with mercy, to overcome hate with love. I was reading last night of the aspiration of the old Persian poet Omar Khayyam. It appealed to me as the highest that I can vision. I wish it was in my heart, and I wish it was in the hearts of all. So I be written in the book of love. I do not care about that book above. Erase my name or write it as you will so I be written in the book of love and speech. Um, what an amazing speech. However you feel about the message, it's an amazing speech. It's very articulate and a lot of depth to it. I found it interesting that he said that the highest attribute of man is mercy, and I think it goes back to our beginning speeches. You know, mercy is very good when you're receiving it, but when you're giving it, it's not necessarily an easy principle. It's a wonderful idea, but it's also very difficult. And I think because it is difficult, that's why he mentions it as the highest attribute of of people, of humankind. Um, as a result of this, I mean, despite all the public pressure and it being one of the largest cases that the world had seen at that point, the judge was was basically persuaded to um, sentence him to life imprisonment uh, with an additional 99 years for kidnapping. Um, a couple of interesting notes. Loeb's father, one of the murderers, um, his father died of heart failure a little over a month after the trial. And uh, Loeb himself was found um, dead in 1936, so a, few, a number of years into his sentence. He was killed with a razor, a number of stabs on his forearms hands. He was slashed his throat. Uh, quite a savage murder, actually, um, and that was the end of of um, Loab. But Leopold lived through his prison sentence. He ended up writing a book. Um, he was released many, many years later after 33 years in 1958 and was able to work in a number of charities. And, and um, he ended up in the University of Puerto Rico where he taught classes eventually. um and he did various research on leprosy. He also set up a a charity of sorts for the troubled youth as well um, and trying to help them move away from the path that he went. Um, He wrote books, and I believe he got married as well later in life where he settled down um, many, many years later. And eventually, of course, um, he passed away in 1971, I think it was, and he was died through diabetes-related heart attack. Well, everyone, I, I hope you enjoyed that speech. I, I really did enjoy it myself, like I said, and, and I got a lot from it. I hope we can apply some of the messages in there. Um, I will look forward to sharing more of these speeches with you um, in the coming weeks. Um, until then, take care of yourself. And, um, yeah, um, I suppose um, um, enjoy enjoy the full week until we speak again. See you later. Mr. Gorbachev Tear down this wall Thanks for listening Please subscribe or leave a review And together we can share The lessons of history With the whole world I am the greatest